Welcome everybody to this great occasion. Um, Greg was reminding me as I, I walked in that, that this is a battle around the world which we continue to fight and it reminded me of the recent case of, of Charles Murray who was shut down and in a very violent uh, incident at a US university. Charles Murray uh, of course is one of the speakers who's spoken for the, at the IPA many times. He came out here the first time I met Charles was here, in, in, not in this building, but up at St. Leonard's. So, uh, Charles, uh, we, we need to stick with people like Charles, and of course with Ian Hersey Ali, who's another um, great friend of the CIS, uh, who, who suffers in this cause around the world. So there is a very, a very serious side to this evening, but of course, I hope a very amusing one too, because how could it not be when we're here to launch this book? So... Um, our speaker tonight, uh, Tony Morris QC, I, I rang Tony and said, would he be prepared in his busy schedule to fly down here? Um, and how much would it cost? But <laughs> no, no, of course, I didn't have to ask that question because I knew, I, I knew how dedicated Tony had been uh, to, to this cause, to fighting this, this terrible, illiberal law, uh, and that if he could, he would be here. And yes, he's here tonight. Uh, so... Tony, thank you for everything you've done uh, for, for Bill and for Callum and the others who've had to go through this terrible ordeal by process and everything you're continuing to do to make sure that the Human Rights Commission sticks within its box. But welcome. Welcome to Tony Morris. Thank you. Bill Lake, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Nick has, to some extent, stolen my thunder since he beat me to, to giving the acknowledgement of country. Um, like Nick, I have a very high respect for the statute law of the state of New South Wales, under which the only person who can lawfully be identified as the, the owner of land is the person who appears on the title what uh, Nick failed to do, however, was to uh, conclude the acknowledgement of country in the traditional way which serves to emphasise not only what a, a hollow and tokenistic gesture it is, but also how utterly patronising and demeaning the process is with the conventional appellations attributed to the elders past and present. So I think we should acknowledge the relevant elders here, Uncle Greg Lindsay, <laughs> Auntie Jennifer Buckingham, <laughs> Uncle Jeremy Samet, and of course, who could forget Auntie Rebecca Weiser. <laughs> I'd also like to, to thank the organisers of this event for their truly extraordinary prescience in recognising something that may perhaps not be obvious to all of you, that Bill Leake is actually what used to be called a, a sensitive new age type of guy. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what the current expression is, but someone who's fully in touch with his, his feminine side. <laughs> so it's particularly fitting that this event should be celebrated on the same occasion as that worldwide festival of tokenism known as International Women's Day. 
A story is told, it may or may not be apocryphal, about the 20th century's greatest violinist, uh, Yehudi Lord Menuhin. Menuhin had a student who was about to perform his first solo professional concert at the Barbican Centre in London. And Menuhin got a call from this student on the morning of the concert. Maestro! Maestro, it's a disaster. My accompanist has fallen ill. Where can I find a pianist at such short notice? How can I possibly go on without an accompanist uh, with whom I've researched the piece? Don't worry, says Menuhin. Don't worry. I've got a few connections in the music industry. I'm sure I'll be able to find someone for you. So... Menuhin rings around his list of piano accompanists and none of them's available. And then he tries the accompanists who have been recommended by those who are on his list and none of them's available. And then the ones who they recommend and so it goes on. And he draws a complete blank and rings his student back and says, look, I've had this great idea. We've rehearsed this piece together. So with your permission, I'd like to accompany you. Oh, maestro, maestro, what can I say, maestro? Uh, I, of course I'd be honoured, but, but I couldn't possibly accept. Uh, I mean, the greatest violinist in the world, it, it would be an embarrassment for you to play the piano in a public stage, um, uh, let alone in the minor role of an accompanist. Nonsense, says Mignon, quite decisively. Nothing embarrassing about it being a piano accompanist. My own sister, Hepzibah Mignon, made her career as a piano accompanist. And truth to tell, I'm rather looking forward to it because I haven't played the piano in public since I was nine years old. <laughs> so it's decided, but an awful realisation suddenly dawns on Menuhin that he's going to need a page-turner. And, of course, violinists don't have page-turners. So he thinks about this for a while and thinks, ah, oh, well, one of his mates who's a concert pianist should be able to put him on to someone. And he picks up the phone and rings Daniel Barenboim. Ah, you've called it a bad time, says Barenboim. My usual accompanist is doing a tour of the US with Lang Lang. My first reserve is with Murray Pariah in the Far East. My second reserve is touring Australia and New Zealand with Vladimir Ashkenazi. You know, I had to line up a, a, a page-turner for one of my students uh, who's performing tonight, and the fellow I found, well, frankly, I wouldn't recommend him as a page-turner for the church organist at the Wayfarer's Chapel. But then after a pause, Baron Boyne says, You know, you're hurting my old friend. I myself have no plans tonight. <laughs> Perhaps you'd let me turn the pages for you. I have to keep an eye on the professional competition, and if you are going to start a new career as a pianist, I want to be there from the beginning. <laughs> anyway, the concert goes ahead, and the next morning a short review appears in the Times of London. It begins, Last night, a most unusual concert took place at the Barbican. The man who was turning the pages 
should have been playing the piano. <laughs> the man who was playing the piano should have been playing the violin. <laughs> and the man who was playing the violin... Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> now, I was given to understand that there may be a guest uh, who perhaps hasn't arrived yet, a certain Sir Leslie Patterson. Uh, and it really did seem to me that in the presence of Australia's greatest living graphic comedian and Australia's greatest living stage comedian, I was a bit like that young violinist. <laughs> I was the one who should be turning the pages. In any case, I, I hope you're not expecting a particularly witty speech because... Frankly, to ask uh, me to make a witty speech in this context would be like asking the ball boy to take the place of one of the competitors in a match between Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. And I actually think wittiness is perhaps a little out of place here because we're talking about a very serious subject. There is nothing more serious than comedy and there is no genre of comedy that is more serious than political satire. I don't know if anyone here is familiar with the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan repertoire, but if you think of all those wonderful and diverse characters that W.S. Gilbert created for the purposes of political satire, that puffed-up politician Sir Joseph Porter, KCB, uh, from HMS Pinnacle, the Lord Chancellor in Iolanthe, uh, the ineffectual Major General Stanley in the Pirates of Penzance, the preening and venal Duke of Plaza Toro in the Gondoliers, Coco, that inept Lord High Executioner in the Mikado, the lecherous learned judge in Trial by Jury. Of all of these characters, the one that was most obviously autobiographical was Jack Point, the jester from Yeoman of the Guard. Gilbert wrote a song for Jack Point, which I think is really a song which Gilbert wrote for himself in the guise of Jack Point, which explains very well the serious nature of the whole business of political satire. To give you just a few lines from it, I've wisdom from the East and from the West that's subject to no academic rule. You can find it in the jeering of a jest or distill it from the folly of a fool. I can teach you with a quip, if I've a mind. I can trick you into learning with a laugh. Oh, winnow all my folly and you'll find a grain or two of truth amongst the chaff. I can set a braggart quailing with a quip. The upstart I can wither with a whim. He may wear a merry laugh upon his lip, but his laughter has an echo that is grim. When they are offered to the world in merry guise, unpleasant truths are swallowed with a will. For he who'd make his fellow creatures wise should always gild the philosophic pill. You know, despite the best efforts of serious journalists and writers... Ever since the Renaissance, if not before, it's the comics 
who have done the most to make their fellow creatures wise by proclaiming those unpleasant truths. Think back to the impact of William Hogarth's satirical art from the 1730s, works like, uh, or series of works like The Harlot's Progress and The Rake's Progress. Think of the political insights delivered by James Gilray, sometimes described as the father of political cartoon back in the Napoleonic era. Uh, Gilray has one which is, I think, probably, with due respect to Bill Leake, my, my favourite cartoon of all time. It shows a, a slightly built young man, uh, not much more than a boy really, standing at the dis dispatch boxes in the House of Commons, addressing the Parliament. This is, of course, William Pitt the Younger, who became Prime Minister at the ripe old age of 24. But with his weedy physique showing not the least sign of any manly definition, you frankly wonder how he keeps his trousers up. And Gilray's caption to the cartoon is a perfect example of that uh, maxim adored by architects and artists that less is more. His caption comprised a mere three words, the bottomless pit. <laughs> it, it may be added that some of the most powerful political cartoons make no attempt at humour, and some of the very best are also very dark indeed. I wonder if there's ever been a cartoonist, or, or for that matter an artist in any genre, who ever created a more compelling and terrible image than Francisco Goya's searing commemoration of the heroic Spanish resistance to Napoleon, Napoleon's occupying armies during the Peninsular War. Most memorably, the depiction of a firing squad going about its awful business in a painting called The 3rd of May, 1808. Nor, indeed, does effective editorial cartooning necessarily have to be satirical in a negative way. Sentiment, and even pathos, may be equally evocative instruments of political commentary. I'm sure that some of you here remember the... Uh, cartoon Dropping the Pilot, drawn by Sir John Tenniel, which was first published in Punch, just a week after the resignation of the German Chancellor, Prince Otto von Bismarck. It shows a youthful Kaiser Wilhelm watching from the deck of a large vessel as the grand old man of German politics descends with dignity to a waiting rowboat. It also has to be said, and you'll be pleased to hear I'm coming to the end, it also has to be said that cartoonists enjoy a liberty not available to other commentators. If I were to put in print the observation that Miss Gillard has an arse large enough to be considered as an alternative to Badgerys Creek as the site for the next Sydney airport, 
such a remark might be considered, uh, at the very least, to be in bad taste. But somehow cartoonists can make the same point graphically and get away with it. Unfortunately, though, more and more, we're living in the era of political correctness. When I first started to look at political cartoons in my preteen years, it was the era of Prime Ministers John Gorton and William McMahon, each of whom, in their own very different ways, uh, represented God's gift to cartoonists. <laughs> but you'd seriously wonder whether spoken or written commentary about an opponent's physical appearance. Uh, some of you here may recall Gough Whitlam's description of McMahon when he said that the diminutive, balding and large-eared gentleman looked like a Volkswagen with both doors left open. <laughs> Could that be permitted in today's society? But, of course, the biggest challenge to freedom of speech and to particularly freedom of the press today is Section 18C. And it is a great honour to know the man or one of the men who has stood up against the intrusion on the freedom of press that 18C represents. We are particularly, all of us here, honoured tonight by the presence not only of Bill Leake, who is one such man, but also Callum Thwaites, one of the QUT students, who is another. <laughs> this is the fight of our time. A, a little over a century ago, a very famous cartoonist, David Lowe, led the fight against federal censorship over the issue of um, military conscription during the First World War. Uh, I'm not suggesting anything here, Bill, but he did go on to a very well-paid and successful career as a cartoonist in the UK after, after leading that fight. But people like him, like James Gilray, like Bill Leake, are the leaders in the fight which every print journalist in this room will ultimately benefit from because the victories, maybe small victories, but the victories which they score are victories for all of us. And I am immensely proud to be here tonight to celebrate this collection of works which is not only beautifully artistic, beautifully drawn, very funny, but also in the very, very best traditions of using political satire as an instrument to blunt the power of government. Bill Leake, all strength to your hand, mate. All strength to your hand. Ladies and gentlemen, I really wish, I really, I really wish that uh, 
that Tony hadn't said all that stuff about um, making sure he wasn't witty because uh, I'd be coming up. Now, I know that it's International Women's Day, so I think the first thing I should do is apologise for not being a woman. <laughs> it's, uh, it's particularly regrettable that I'm not a glamorous Sudanese-Egyptian-Australian woman who wears a hijab, promoting a book about what it's like being a glamorous Sudanese-Egyptian-Australian woman who wears a hijab. If, if I was, this would not be the only event I've got lined up on my non-government-funded whirlwind trigger-warning awareness-raising tour. Now, when I, when I met the great Australian cartoonist Bill Mitchell about 34 years ago, he said, Mate, a cartoonist only has to be funny once a day, but it's a lot harder than you'd think. <laughs> now, he was right, but he had no idea how much harder it would be for me than it ever was for him. For a start, in order for Bill Mitchell to come up with a cartoon, all he had to do was take a serious political issue exaggerate it to the point of absurdity and draw whatever he saw when he got there. But I can't do that because these, the ideas our politicians have these days are utterly ridiculous to start with. <laughs> and if you're starting at the point of absurdity, where are you supposed to go from there? I mean, what... I ask you, what, what on earth am I going to have to come up with to make teachers in the Safe Schools program look ridiculous when they actually start giving jobs to gimps? And how long do you think that it'll be then before some gimps' rights campaigner accuses me of gimpophobia? <laughs> Another reason why the job's so much harder now than it was for Bill Mitchell is because, unlike him, I can't just sort of breezily assume that people are looking at my cartoons hoping to get a laugh. Ever since conceptual art supplanted transcendent art, all art has been reduced to the level of graffiti. And to people reared on postmodernism and cultural relativism who can't tell the difference between Picasso and Banksy, I'm... <laughs> I'm not a cartoonist working for a newspaper. I'm an artist exhibiting in a gallery that gets hundreds of thousands of visitors through the doors every day. Well, the work of a man like that has to be taken very seriously indeed. It has to be analysed. It has to be deconstructed. It has to be decoded by these people in a search for hidden meanings. And because... Art, like political activism, is a form of therapy. It's also supposed to reinforce and confirm their prejudices, not challenge them. Well, bugger that. <laughs> political correctness is a poison that attacks the sense of humour. Luckily for Bill Mitchell, it was tipped into our water supply at around about the time he retired. And since then, it's infected an awful lot of people. As the senses of humour of people suffering from PC atrophy, their sensitivity to criticism becomes more and more acute. 
until they get to the stage where everything offends them and they lose the ability to laugh entirely. For your chronic PC sufferer, feeling offended is about as good as it gets. So a good cartoon gives them an excuse to parade their moral superiority in 140 characters or less, scrawled on the dunny door of social media, where every other humorless halfwit who's seen the cartoon and felt offended can also join in the fun. And they do. Well, I don't twit and I don't face, so most of the time I'm able to remain blissfully unaware of all of the howls of outrage and indignation directed at me in response to my cartoons. But not always. Two years ago, I realised that sometimes I really do have to worry about whether people think my cartoons are funny or not. When I discovered, to my surprise, that bloodthirsty barbarians aren't immune to political correctness and their delicate sensibilities are just as easily offended as those of any precious little snowflake you'll find in a gender studies faculty at the university. <laughs> and... For your average Islamist terrorist firing off a few impassioned obscenities on, Twitter, on a Twitter feed is no substitute for the sort of satisfaction you can get by hunting down the person who's offended you and chopping his bloody head off. Bill, sorry to interrupt you, there's a friend come. Bloke says he knows you. Yes, I know who it is. <laughs> Hello, Liz. Hey, Bill. Good afternoon. <laughs> How are you, mate? Sorry, you can you can continue your speech afterwards, but these poor bastards have been standing up. And, uh, that judge, who was that judge droning on? No, I'm sure he's on the right side. Because when they're in that, those courtrooms, they can talk forever, can't they? No, I don't want to keep people waiting. Good evening, everyone. Very good health. <laughs> I'm a single malt man. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, honoured guests, retired prime ministers, <laughs> members of the press, and uh, assorted riffraff and gatecrashers. I am a man who have, has attained his statue in the political spectrum because I go to that much more trouble. I'll go to any length. And that's how I like my research assistants. <laughs> I'm prepared to go to any length, they say, Les. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I've been giving a bit of poor old, old Tim Warner there, you know. Well, well, we all put a hand on the wrong knee from time to time. <laughs> I've avoided in my career in the upper echelons of politics and international diplomacy. Um, I, I've maintained my position of rectitude <laughs> and sometimes erectitude. <laughs> And uh, by, frankly, uh, doing the opposite of what poor old Warney 
did. I believe in rooting everyone in the office. <laughs> Not just one. That was his mistake. <laughs> However, you're in for something now. This is a cultural landmark. A poem that I've gone to the trouble of writing. <clears throat> I'm Leslie Colin Patterson, but address me as Les, please. I'm an elder statesman, spin doctor, and Australia's eminence grease. That's a French word. <laughs> In Canberra, I'm an icon and a national institution. I'm the bloke who gave Julia Gillard a master class in elocution. <laughs> and though I am as indigenous as a wombat or koala, I talk that poor bastard Keating, his expertise on Marla. Heard him going on about Marla. <laughs> well... Doesn't fool anyone, Paul. <laughs> I got all my Labor colleagues to use the buzzword mate, especially when addressing the people that they hate. <laughs> Good to see you, mate. <laughs> Way back in the golden olden days of my friend and mentor Goff, when every bludger and wanker had his nose deep in the trough. <laughs> Who was it they sent off, a, off on a top-secret campaign to brown-nosed Colonel Gaddafi and schmooze Saddam Hussein? <laughs> now, believe me, I was never a major fan of Saddam's. And today my best mates are Waleed, Waleed and self-effacing Philip Adams. <laughs> Am I being heretical, do you think? And I practice every bloody thing that mature expedience teaches. I polish Malcolm Turnbull's jokes. And I write Bill Shorten's speeches. <laughs> But this evening, for my sins, I have been nicely asked to speak, to speak a few well-chosen words about my old mate, William Leake. <laughs> Not long ago, he done my portrait for the prestigious Archibald Prize. And on a great big canvas, too, in proportion to my size. <laughs> But the right-wing fascist judges didn't give our bill his due. And the feminists can't stand us. They'd rather paddle the pink canoe. <laughs> a lovely... A lovely resonant concept. But Bill's Australia's Rembrandt. He's our Warhol, our Jeff, Jeff Coons. 
and I was absolutely god, god, gobsmacked to hear he also drew cartoons. <laughs> I'm afraid I've never seen them, Bill. So I might as well confess that in accordance with my politics, I read the Fairfax fucking press. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good luck, Bill. Good luck. <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies. Forgive me, ladies. That just, that just slipped back. And it slipped out. <laughs> you know the feeling, don't you, girls? Eh? <laughs> All the best, Bill. Good luck.